We are launching a sermon series today as we think about mapping our church's DNA, who we are, what makes us unique, and where we're going as a congregation. So we want to begin this morning by thinking together about uh, being a worshiping community focused with God as the center. Before I read the scripture and before the message, I'd invite us to a time of prayer. If we could bow our heads, simply be in silently in God's presence to bring petitions, doubts, fears, confession of sin, thanksgiving, or to simply soak up God's wonderful presence. After a time of silence, I'll lead us in family prayer. We continue our prayers to you, Eternal Spirit, asking for your blessing upon those today who are struggling, for those who are ill, for those who are grieving, remembering to pray for those serving in the armed forces, remembering to pray today on this very cold day for the homeless, for the people living on the margins of life. On this Martin Luther King Jr. Day weekend, we pause to thank you for those strides that have been made toward justice and integration in our, in our nation, among us, acknowledging that there's so much more that needs to happen and asking that you give us tender and wise hearts, that we might learn to love everyone the way you love and that bias and hatred and bigotry might be overshadowed and overcome by your law of love. We pray today for all who feel forgotten by you. There are those who are struggling with those kinds of doubts. Where is God? We pray today for all of those who are feeling forgotten by other people, mistreated by others. May you reveal yourself to these special ones and be tenderly present for them. We pray today uh, for our government in the face of uh, the shutdown, that for those especially who are suffering and struggling, we pray that you will bless with wisdom and courage those who lead us to find creative and just solutions. We ask that you help us to be the salt and light as followers of Jesus in these times of intemperate speech and careless words, that we might be good stewards of our influence and of our words. And today, God, Above all, we want to be open to the truth of this scripture text about worship. That today, when we leave this place, we will leave understanding more uh, that you are the God who is to be known and worshipped and obeyed to all the ends of the earth. Guide the words of my mouth and the meditations of our collective hearts, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Now, if you are able, if you would stand, please, as I read aloud the 63rd Psalm, the first eight verses. O God, you are my God. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. 
Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands and call on your name. My soul is satisfied as with a rich feast. and My mouth praises you with joyful lips. When I think of you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Pastor Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback in California, has said that every pastor should preach on the church's mission and vision at least every six weeks. Now, I don't think he meant a sermon series on the church's mission and vision, but he means that that pastor needs to articulate the church's vision and mission, who she is, where she's going, at least every six weeks to keep, keep it in front of the people. And you know, at the beginning of this new calendar year, uh, it's our intention that we take a breath and, and uh, ask ourselves questions about who we are as a congregation, what makes us unique, what is God's unique dream and calling on our lives, and where are we going? And, and this seems a helpful thing to do if you're new around here. It helps you know what you're stepping into and to see if this is a good matchup for your gifts and your passions, uh, your place of service and your place of worship and uh, a way for you to follow Jesus with this congregation. And if you're a veteran, if you've been here a long time, like some of us, it's good to renew, it's good to refresh, it's good to... Uh, clarify who we are, to motivate us, and to recommit. Some of us remember those uh, days a few years ago when we began this visioning process uh, in the fellowship hall downstairs, seated around tables on a Sunday afternoon, about 300 of us, as we were asked to uh, talk about why we came to this church in the first place, and what keeps us here, why we've stayed and what our dreams are and our vision for this congregation. And so what came out of that is not something from top down from pastors or some key leaders in the church, but it really bubbled up from the congregation as we began to think about our unique DNA as a congregation, who we are and where we're going. And we, as a congregation, seem to just gravitate around five initiatives, and we call them the five sails, as the wind of the Spirit blows and we set sail. And uh, God-centered worship, which is what we're talking about today. Next Sunday, we'll talk about life-changing faith. February 3rd, authentic relationships. February 10th, community transformation. February 17th, global partners. This morning, we think together about God-centered worship. We love God. That is our primary identity. That's core DNA. That also defines where we're going. We love God. We focus on God-centered worship. Notice, God-centered worship, not human-centered worship. A man was leaving church one day, and as he shook hands with the pastor, he said, I want you to know, Pastor, I did not get a single thing out of that worship service. And the pastor, without missing a beat, said, Oh, I'm so glad because it wasn't directed toward you. It was directed toward God. 
We forget that, don't we? It was Danish theologian and philosopher Soren Kierkegaard who helped us reframe the model of worship. He said, we so often think of worship as um, uh, the pastor and the choir are the actors in this drama, and the congregation is the audience, and they get to clap and say, that was really good, or that was funny, or, you know, I got a lot out of that, and I approve, I disapprove. Soren Kierkegaard said, that's, that's wrong. He said, we need to flip that image and understand that we, pastor, choir, praise team, congregation, are the performers in this drama, and God is the audience. God is the one who should be telling us, I got a lot out of that. You, you were, that was meaningful, what you offered me. God is the audience. William Willimon is always uh, provocative in his comments and always uh, amazing in his, in his statements. And he has a great quote about worship. He said, uh, we need to stop worrying about ourselves as we worship. Whether we do, uh, what we do looks good or is suitably relevant or makes sense or makes us feel comfortable and let God start remaking us and start enjoying the presence of the one whose grace reduces such worries to delightful irrelevance. I'm going to leave that. I ask the, the team to keep that on the screen for a while in case you want to reflect on that as you listen, and you may even want to jot it down, and you can get it from me later. It'll be on the web page. What a great statement. Stop worrying about ourselves as if we're the center of worship. Was it relevant? Did it make us look good? Did it make us feel good? All of that, when God's grace floods, becomes a delightful irrelevance when we just simply begin to enjoy the privilege of being in God's presence. If you stop and think about it, it's pretty audacious, pretty arrogant of us, and pretty blasphemous of us to act as if on Sunday morning, here's the hoop, God, and we need you to jump through it. Here's the hoop, God, now jump through it. And by the way, God, you have exactly 60 minutes. No more than that, because I check out after that. Pretty blasphemous. God is the center of worship. Now this text is rich with some beautiful, beautiful guidelines. Oh God, you are my God. Right there. Most Israelites, most Jews did not address God in such personal terms. They wouldn't even say the name Yahweh. They substituted for Adonai, Lord, because they didn't believe they were worth, worthy of taking God's name, Yahweh, on their lips. They usually talked about God as distant, but for, a, for the psalmist to say, God, my God, deeply personal, intimate. And then he describes his longing for God as a thirst. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as, a, as in a dry and weary land. Humans cannot live without water, and we cannot live without God. We cannot really live without worship. Our souls thirst for God. I don't know if you've ever really lived through a drought on the farm, but when there's no water, 
livestock start acting crazy. And when they sniff water, man, I'm telling you, you better not be in their way. Because they have this instinctive something inside them that drives them to satisfy the thirst. And so the psalmist says, we are incurably religious. We are incurably religious. Even when we don't know it's God we need, it's God we need and our souls thirst. It's quite a paradox, isn't it? That our culture so craves personal validation. People need to feel valued. People need to feel important. People need a sense of self-worth and self-esteem, and yet they look for it every place else except God. A little bit of etymology here, word history. The word worship comes from an old English word, worth-ship. So in worship, we are extolling God's worth. And what an irony. It's when we make God the center of worship. It's when we extol the value of God that we discover our own value. It's when we stop making ourselves the center of attention that we actually get our thirst slaked and our thirst satisfied. The psalmist goes on. He talks about the rhythms of worship. He talks about worshiping in the sanctuary. And then he talks in verse 6 about worshiping on his bed alone at night. You see the rhythm of worship? There's corporate worship, collective worship, where we're all together. We need that. But there's also private worship on our beds in the middle of the night. And one's not more important than the other. In fact, one feeds and strengthens the other. We, we need corporate worship, and it's enriched by private worship. And it's diminished if we don't do private worship. We need private worship. It is enriched with corporate worship but it is diminished if we don't meet together with God's people to worship. So there's that rhythm to worship in the sanctuary and in my bed at night. And then he says in verse 4, I lift up my hands and call on your name. There's a physicality to worship. There's something physical about worship. We don't just engage our minds. We don't just engage our hearts, but we engage our bodies. We do things. We take the communion meal. We sing. We we make movement. The psalmist says, I raise my hands. You know, one of the things that we discovered in setting sail around the tables, people said, I need to be able to feel free when I come to church, to worship as I feel led to worship. Because some people like to raise their hands in worship and not have people turn and stare at them like, like they've grown a third ear or something. People, you know, not everybody has the same worship style. And there is no one worship style that honors God more than the other. Some people prefer quietness and reverence and, and orderly service with responsive readings. That's worshipful if God's at the center. Some people prefer a more casual service, a noisier service, raising arms and shouting amen. One is not more spiritual than the other. Our 815 service is not more spiritual than the 1045, nor vice versa. 
if God is the center. You may remember the story about the man who was visiting in another town over the weekend, decided to go visit the local Baptist church, and he noticed during the beginning of worship that it was pretty staid and formal. But the preacher got to preaching, and the guy shouted, Amen! And uh, everybody turned and looked at the visitor, and the preacher preached on and struck another really good chord, and the man said, Praise the Lord! And everybody turned and looked at the visitor, and finally the preacher really got rolling, and the guy said, Hallelujah! And he raised his arm, and an usher came up to him and said, uh, Sir, we're going to have to ask you to pipe down and be quiet. The man said, I can't help it. I got the Holy Spirit. And the usher said, Well, I can't help it either. You didn't get it here, so please pipe down. <laughs> Part of what's in the DNA of First Baptist Church is that an honoring of diversity, a respecting of other followers of Jesus and the way they might worship and feel comfortable. And it's interesting that the psalmist would talk about raising his hands in abandon and worship to God. Now, when I mention uh, the emotional worship, I want to be careful here because we, we want to understand another thing that's in the DNA of our church and, and we believe that is a part of scriptural teaching is that we never want to slide off into emotional manipulation. We never want worship to be about guilting people and manipulating responses from people. I get amused sometimes because occasionally some of you will come up to me and say, Oh, preacher, I feel so sorry for you on Sunday morning during the altar call. You're standing up there all by yourself and nobody comes forward. Whoa, time out. Pause button. Worship isn't about me. Worship is not about results. I, better than anybody else, as shepherd of this flock, know the ways in which God's work is going deeper than just a response time for a few minutes during an invitation. That's not how we measure whether God is the center of worship. And some of us raised in the revival culture think that worship hasn't happened unless, unless the evangelist tells scary stories and frightens children to come to the altar in case they die tonight. Granted, there's a place for the altar call, but that's not the only place in time God works. And we will never as a congregation slide into that manipulation because when it's God-centered worship, the results happen in other delightful ways besides that particular tiny time frame. Tony Campolo, as you might imagine, said it best. He said, I'm sick and tired of us playing 1,000 verses of Just As I Am and people come to the altar just as they are and leave the church just as they were. Fascinating that the psalmist in the 63rd chapter changes the image from thirst to hunger, from water to food. Verse 5, my soul is satisfied with a rich feast and my mouth praises you with joyful lips. Wow. There is feeding that happens in worship. So I want to be careful here. When we say God is the center of worship, it's not about us. Yes, God is the center of worship. It's not about us. But that doesn't mean that worshiping is without benefits. Because we get fed and we get watered in worship. 
If God is the center, yes, blessings do come to us. The psalmist goes on and describes some of that blessing when he talks about, I, I feel God's shelter, I feel God's care, I feel, God, I feel the shadow, I can see the shadow of God's wings taking care of me. In worship, I feel security, I feel comfort, I feel care. Most Bible scholars believe that this 63rd Psalm was written when David was running from King Saul who was trying to kill him. You can read about it in 1 Samuel 23 and 1 Samuel 24. David was hiding out and didn't know whether he was going to live another day, but he found in his worship of God a shelter, a safety, a security, a protection. And isn't that what we experience in worship? We're compelled by love and hope because we sense that in worship we experience a Savior who knows every tear that we've ever shed. In worship we experience Jesus who has walked with us in the darkest nights of our souls. In worship we experience Jesus who will never leave us or forsake us. And David's words are so beautiful in verse 7. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. Can't you just see that mother eagle spreading her wings over her little eaglets, saying to the wind, you will not harm my babies. Saying to the storm, you will not touch my baby. Saying to the prey that might come after them, you cannot have these, they are mine. And so God, in worship, spreads his wings over us and says to every enemy of ours, you will not have this child of mine. She belongs to me. You will not have this one. This one belongs to me. And in worship, in God-centered worship, we experience love and hope, then we are compelled by love and hope, and we are able to offer it to others. God-centered worship. We love God.